Do you enjoy listening to On the Ear but wish you could earn ASHA CEUs for it? Start today. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of audio courses on demand with an average of 19 new audio courses released each month. And here's the best part. Each episode earns you ASHA continuing ed credits. Oh, no, wait. This is the best part. As a listener of On the Ear, you can receive $20 off an annual subscription when you use code EAR21. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com to sign up and use code EAR21, E-A-R-2-1, for $20 off your annual subscription. You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. One of the really fun things about being a clinician in communication disorders is the opportunity to collaborate with a lot of different professionals. Many audiologists and speech-language pathologists regularly work with physical therapists, occupational therapists, otolaryngologists, teachers, psychologists, nurses, dentists, pediatricians, early interventionists, the list could go on and on and on. But how can we make the most of these relationships? Are we educating students and methods for best approaching interprofessional collaboration? And which is it? Is it IPC? Is it IPP? Is it IPE? What am I supposed to call this all? So today's guest is going to help make all of this a lot more clear. Dr. Danica Pfeiffer is a postdoctoral fellow at Kennedy Krieger Institute Center for Autism and Related Disorders and Johns Hopkins University. She has clinical experience working with children in the school and private practice settings. Her research evaluates early language and literacy interventions for young children with language disorders, as well as interprofessional education and practice in the field of speech-language pathology. She has been an invited speaker on the topic of interprofessional practice at the state, national, and international levels, and she recently started the About, From, and With podcast to share her SLP journey in academia, as well as the journeys of other SLPs and their collaborators. Danica, how you doing? I'm so glad you're able to join me. I'm so excited to talk about this a lot deeper. Yes, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. So maybe let's start with the letters because, okay, can I tell you what I think it is and then you tell me if this is right or wrong? Yes. So is IPE, Interprofessional Education, that's how we teach students to collaborate with other disciplines. IPP, Interprofessional Practice, is that in practice? And then IPC is just another name for it? Or is that wrong? What am, what am I missing here? Help me out. Yes. So this is confusing because it's actually changed a lot over time, especially in the past 10 years. And so you are not alone here with your confusion, <laughs> but you are exactly right. So interprofessional education is really learning how to collaborate effectively. So the World Health Organization defines it as when two or more professionals are learning about, from, and with each other to really enable that effective collaboration. And then interprofessional practice is really the natural extension of that. So taking that learning of how to collaborate and learn with each other 
and carrying that now into the practice setting. And here it's really focused on providing comprehensive and integrated care to our patients. Got it. Clearly you do this for a living. Yeah, you, you put that into the perfect little bubble there. Okay, so actually that's one of the first things I wanted to ask you. You mentioned, you know, in the last 10 years, it's changed a lot. Historically, did we approach this differently? I mean, it seems kind of intuitive, like, oh yeah, we should definitely be learning from each other. But obviously that's not always been the case. <laughs> How did we get to this point? Like what's changed over time? So in 2011, there was the Interprofessional Education Collaborative was this organization that came together and said, there's this growing need that our professionals from different disciplines need to learn how to collaborate together because they're going out into the workforce and they're working with patients that are really complex and they need to be able to communicate effectively. And so what they did was they came together and they established four core competencies that are really important for interprofessional education education. And those core competencies now are really driving the work that's done in interprofessional practice as kind of a guideline for how we can train our students in interprofessional education so that they can practice effectively on interprofessional teams. And so those core competencies, there's four of them. The first is roles and responsibilities. And here, that's really focused on understanding what your role is on a team and also Mm -hmm. the roles of others on a team. So it's really important that you know what those things are. And I think sometimes we assume that we know, but we don't always know. So that's Mm -hmm. the first one. The second is interprofessional communication, just being able to communicate effectively and in a responsible and a respectable manner with others on your team. Also, values and ethics is the third competency, which is really about mutual respect and shared values. You need to make sure that your team members respect each other and that you have shared values for your work together. And the last is teams and teamwork, which really focuses on relationship building. That is really key to being able to work on a team effectively is to be able to establish a good, positive working relationship. Cool. So it's it's a lot more formalized than I realized. I didn't know, you know, that there was a, a summit on this to come up with these competencies. It's a great idea for implementing programs like this. I don't want to speak out of turn, but I'm pretty sure we didn't have like an IPE class when I was in grad school or anything like that. I mean, is this, I know that where I'm at now, we have something IPE. I'm not sure. I think it's a class. I don't teach it, but I'm involved in a twice a year. We do like an IPE event with other schools within the university. But is this like typically formally taught with using those competencies? Is it, has it historically been taught or is it just... You have to figure it out as you go or like, how are we starting to like teach this specifically now? That is a great question. So this does really vary from university to university because there's not a whole lot of research out there right now to guide us on how to actually teach it. So at some (laughs) universities, it's a one day seminar where they gather different students from different professions and they all come together and they do some case studies together and they learn about interprofessional practice. Others have a full semester experience where they're placed on an interprofessional team and they actually work clinically with that group. This really varies. And I think at this point, we don't really know the best way to teach it, but we know that those four core competencies are really important for students to learn so that they're ready to go out in the field and practice. Gotcha. Yeah. It sounds like what we do is they're in a class for a semester without any involvement with each other. They're just learning probably some of the information based on these competencies. And then the day that I'm involved with is like that single day. We actually bring in real patients. They sit in a room and then the students from all of the different departments kind of like round on this person. It's really cool. Like just 
as a like I'm not the student like I'm just there to supervise and I'm like this is awesome to see you guys all talking this way with each other I mean it's it's really really cool so it's good to see that we're moving in that direction I mean where do you see the kind of education the teaching of this do you think it has to be that hands on do you think we can kind of get some of the bulk information in more of like a lecture style like how do you see the the teaching evolution happen So we do know a little bit from some studies that have been done so far. We know that students do not learn by osmosis. You cannot stick them all in the same room (laughs) and just say, we did interprofessional education because they all were in the same room. They don't learn from each other that way. You really have to have some facilitated discussions for students to learn about each other's roles and to build some kind of relationship so that they can practice together. So we do know that this facilitated discussion is really important. Actually, I have done a study that examined a group of students that only received workshops about interprofessional education and then a group that actually received the workshop plus had the hands-on practice where they got to go into schools and work on interprofessional teams. And the only ones that said that they felt they actually established these competencies and grew in those four core competency areas were those that had the hands-on practice. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's really where we need to spend our time. I think the workshops are important and it's great to have that foundational knowledge, but we really need some kind of practice component to be included for the students to really feel that they're learning it and to get that hands-on experience before they're thrown into their professional working environment. Absolutely. Yeah. I teach future SLPs as an audiologist. And the first day we just talk about scope of practice, but I don't think it's, it's hard to say like, Hey, are you going to be on a team with all of these other disciplines? Go ahead and look up their scope of practice, learn that that way, you know, when the time comes who to refer to and when it's within your scope. I mean, like that would be ideal, but I don't think that's very realistic, but I do think being in the context of it happening, you get a much better sense of like what they do when they see someone for the first time. And, you know, and maybe that can help you counsel that patient oh, I'm nervous about my physical therapy appointment next week. I'm, I'm going to be, oh, don't worry. They're great. They're probably going to ask you to do a couple things. You know, it just gives you that kind of like, you know, there's, there's a lot of skills that come from knowing what other people are doing. Exactly. And it's so nice when you can articulate that to your clients and their families. And it, it also mm-hmm. just brings that sense of you created a team, you were on a team, you are communicating regularly with that other person. And that creates such a better experience for the families as well. Yeah, absolutely. At this point, how do you personally define IPP? Because that's the one we're honing in on, right? Like that's really the, is that kind of like the granddaddy word of them? Yes. Interprofessional practice is kind of the term that we have moved towards now. We're going to stick with that one at least for a little while. (laughs) Yes. Hopefully we will stay there. So IPP, yes, that is what ASHA is using. And so that is what I am using now at this point. And that's just really when you have two or more professionals that are working together. They are committed to being on a team together to provide comprehensive care to their patients. And that can be in a healthcare environment, that could be in a school environment, anywhere where you are collaborating with multiple professionals. And you have to have some kind of regular communication for it to be Mm. an interprofessional team. So it's not just that you all are working with the same patient, but you actually are trying to provide that coordinated care and have that regular communication with your teammates. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So is IPP, now that we understand it this way, are there other ways of approaching? I mean, I have to think that historically people have thought they were doing it the right way, a certain way, and maybe it has a name. Do you know what I mean? Like, just collaboration in general, it sounds like what you're describing as IPP is kind of specific in that it needs that ongoing communication, all those other building the relationship, those kind of competencies. 
are there other ways that people say like, oh, I don't want to do it that way. I want to approach collaboration this way. Or even if they're not like historically, maybe they approached it that way. Yes. So there's three key models now that we think about with collaboration. And these terms are often used interchangeably, but they really should not be because they actually mean different things. So the first one is multidisciplinary, which you've probably heard that a lot. I'm on a multidisciplinary team. That Mm -hmm. means that there are several professionals that are all working with the same client, but there isn't that shared communication built in. So there's no agreement that we're going to meet regularly to discuss this patient. We're all working with that Mm -hmm. patient and we may share information from time to time, but we're not scheduling that regular communication with each other. The parent or the family is also sometimes included in decision-making on these teams, but they're not an explicit member of the team. Okay. And all of the professionals, they establish their own goals for the client. They all work on those goals separately, and they have their own treatment plans for the client. Okay. So you all are working with the same patient that is shared, but otherwise there's not a lot of communication happening. The other model that's used a lot in that term that's kind of thrown around a lot is interdisciplinary. And that's another great collaboration model that is a little bit more collaborative than multidisciplinary. And in that model, you do typically have a regularly scheduled time where you come together to share information about the client. So there's multiple professionals from different disciplines. They have that shared communication time. They typically do their assessments of the client separately, but they do share information about what they saw in those assessments. They'll share their goals together. So they'll let the other professionals know what they're going to be targeting with the patient, which is great. And in that model, sometimes you might have the parent or the family included in the decision-making process. So it's Mm -hmm. not always happens, but sometimes that will happen if you're working on this interdisciplinary team. And so then the most collaborative is what we know now as interprofessional. It used to be called transdisciplinary. And so that term has kind of changed and evolved over time. But now we know it as interprofessional. And that's when you do have that regularly scheduled communication time where you share information. But the Mm -hmm. unique thing about it is that you can also, using this model, you also sometimes do what they call arena evaluations, where you all come together and you actually assess the patient or the client all at the same time. So you're working together during that assessment. And also, you all take responsibility for the client's goals. So you do some role sharing when you're using this model where you all are aware of the client's goals. And because of that, you can actually integrate some of those goals into your own therapy sessions with the client. So you all take responsibility for the client's full goals. And then the family is always included as a member of the team using this model. So you always want to be thinking about asking the family for their priorities and their needs. And that gets Mm. integrated into the family and the patient's service plan. Wow, that's really cool. I agree that I've always thought of those terms pretty interchangeably. But yeah, the way that you describe it, it makes a lot of sense how distinct they are. Could you give me an example of an interprofessional team kind of, especially what was the last word you used? Arena? Arena. arena is it a verb? Uh, <laughs> arena evaluation. Okay. Yeah, We're arena on this one. Uh, like, can you give me an example of that in practice? Like which kind of professionals you picture and that kind of a setup or what those goals overlapping might look like? 
Sure. So my background, I have worked in the schools, so that's coming to mind. I was a preschool speech language pathologist. And so in preschool, typically we'll have the speech language pathologist, the classroom teacher, you would have the parent with you. You may have a special education specialist that's in their classroom with you. And whatever assessments you would be doing, so maybe my discipline specific assessments as a speech language pathologist, whatever the classroom teacher would like to find out more information about, all of us would be communicating about the information that we hope to collect before that evaluation occurs. So we would come up with a plan, then we would have the child come into our room, and we would all take part in taking our own observations, doing our assessments, and gathering information about the client all at once, instead of each doing our own assessment of the child separately. So we only need to get case history from the parent one time, because we're all Mm -hmm. together in the same room. I might ask a question that the teacher was going to already had planned to ask, or they might ask something that I hadn't thought about. So it's a really nice time where we can all come together and we're all working with the child at the same time and getting to build off of each other's expertise, which is something that's really nice about interprofessional collaboration. That's awesome. The more you break it down, the more I'm seeing like, ooh, that's definitely like a time saver or the child won't fatigue as bad if they're in the situation or it's easier to build trust if they already, they already really like their SLP, but they struggle with their teacher. But then they see them like being friendly with each other in this setting. And like, maybe that's helping build a relationship too. I can just see a lot of benefits here. I think probably I was going to ask you, what do you think the challenges are of maintaining a model like that? Probably the biggest one is getting all of those people into the same room oftentimes with scheduling and stuff, that's probably a little tough. But like, what other challenges come to mind? The benefits seem very obvious for that kind of a model. Yes, time is definitely always a challenge. And having shared schedules where you could actually all be in the same room at the same time. Some professionals say that they actually face some resistance from other professionals in wanting Mm. to do something like this and actually collaborate. It does take time and it does take planning. So it's something that is viewed right now as being an extra thing because a lot of people have not received this training in grad school. So just trying to wrap your head around what this would look like and how it should be done, it takes extra effort and planning. So some people are not necessarily open to that. Others will say that their administration is not supportive of this team kind of environment because of these challenges. They would then have to work with them to establish a shared planning time, which might mean changing schedules. And so there's barriers there when it comes to trying to think about the logistics of everything. Totally. And I feel like maybe like in some settings too, like who's the billing provider at the same time, that's probably gets pretty messy. Yes. And there's definitely still settings where it's not possible because of billing. And so we still have a ways to go with advocacy and trying to prove and show in the research the outcomes and how outcomes can improve for patients that Mm -hmm. are receiving care on an interprofessional team. But the research is still kind of early on. We have been able to see some benefits in the research, but they definitely are still emerging. And so people are still really exploring what are the impacts of our care on these patients when we're working on these teams. Yeah. And I think you're so right that if someone hasn't done this before, it's a, it's like a total paradigm shift in your thinking and like how to approach a patient. Like you spend so much time on your own prepping what you're going to ask case history wise, what you're going to evaluate. And you just have to completely shift the way that you think about that to be like, okay, I need to incorporate what they're going to do. How can I play off of that? You know, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just definitely like a shift in the way that we would typically approach this kind of appointment. 
It is. It is really different. And again, I think it is really different because we don't have that training. But I think if we could embed this into training more often, then it would just seem like the normal thing. This is just what we do. We collaborate when we do these kinds of evaluations because why not, you know? And so I think it really just has to start early and, and that makes it a lot easier. And I think professionals are a lot more willing if they have that early training. Yeah. And I'm not an SLP, so I don't know all of the terminology, but I have heard of like co-treat and co-treatment. Is that kind of, is that like in this vein of a model? Because I think that's normally like maybe you have an OT and an SLP in the same appointment co-treating. Is that kind of another word in this realm? So yes, it is. And it can be any of those collaboration models that I told you about. So when they are working together and they're in the same room, they could be using any of those forms of collaboration, if Mm, that makes sense. Okay, I see. So they might be collaborating interprofessionally, but it might still just be more interdisciplinary. Maybe they are sharing information regularly, but they are still really only accountable for their own discipline-specific goals. And they're not really trying to target the other goals. So if they're in the same room and they're really supporting one another and targeting each discipline-specific goals, if that's SL LP targeted goals and OT targeted goals together, and you see both professionals really helping to support the child in both of those areas, then that would Mm -hmm. be interprofessional collaboration. But if they're in the classroom with the child and they're both really, even though they're together, they're really only targeting their own discipline specific goals, then that Mm -hmm. would be more interdisciplinary. So it can really fall into any of those kinds of models. Yeah, that makes total sense. That makes total sense. I had I didn't even think about that. But yeah, it d- totally depends on what your mentality is when you're sharing the room. You know, that's what determines what's going on here. Yeah, exactly. But that's why it's so confusing, because there's all these <laughs> terms that kind of sound the same. <laughs> but yeah, yeah they're, they are a little bit different. There are some nuances. Yeah. Out of curiosity, what led you t- into this realm? I mean, this is not very SLP specific. You know, I feel like any discipline could do IPP research. You know what I mean? But like, how did you get into this world? So when I was in grad school, I was a graduate assistant and my advisor that I was doing research with was doing an interprofessional project. And she brought me in and part of my role on that project was to go and meet with all the faculty that were involved in this interprofessional project and then actually help facilitate some of the activities that the students would be doing when they met for their interprofessional training. And so since she was doing it, I got to be part of it from the very start. And it just got me really excited about it. And I actually got to do some of the training as a student myself when I was in grad school. And then I started my clinical fellowship in the schools and I was excited about collaboration and ready to go out there and collaborate on teams. And I got into the school setting and I saw there really was not this collaboration (laughs) happening. (laughs) And I was really disappointed and also very confused of like, why is this not happening as a fresh new clinician? And so then I actually continued on into my PhD right away. And so I was able to take that experience right into my PhD. And I said, I want to know more about this. Why is it not happening in schools? And so that's kind of what fueled my fire a little bit. Really cool. So just like the happened to be a part of this this seminar, this seminar and then it just, then it just set, set a whole set a world, world in motion. motion. I, mean, I mean, that's that's really that's cool. Really cool. And, and where, and did, where you go? did you go? Might I ask for all of that great education? James Madison University. Go Dukes. Let's go Dukes. <laughs> that's right. We've had so many JMU people on this podcast. People have got to be sick of JMU at this point. But hey, we got to keep them on the map. A lot of great people from JMU. But yeah, that's really, really cool. And I love that you you've got that 
you know, the personal experience that you were there and you, you got to see how it didn't work out so well in your clinical experience. I don't know now that you're like a postdoc, how much clinic time you're doing, but have you seen these models at work and working well? So I did some clinical experience in the schools, and then I went into a private practice. And in the schools, collaboration was allowed. We could do it if we wanted to co-treat, like you had just mentioned, and we could take our data. Everything was fine. That does vary depending on what school system you're in. Then I went into the private practice setting where, because of billing reasons, I was not allowed to collaborate with others. Mm. So that was disappointing. I haven't seen personally in my own clinical experience a team that's done this well. I have met with others through my research that have done it and are doing it really well in schools Mm -hmm. and in other hospital settings. So it does happen. People that are doing it, they are so excited to talk about it because they see that it works. And so it's always really inspiring to hear those stories. But clinically, I haven't personally seen it up front. Gotcha. That's really cool. The one that I personally haven't been a part of a team like that you know, at that level, I do get to participate in a craniofacial clinic once a month where all of the disciplines are kind of in a shared space. You know, we're all right next door to each other and there's orthodontics and speech and audiology and plastic surgery and nursing and child psychology. And there's a pediatrician. There's just like every kind of discipline you could think of. And then that way this child doesn't have to have 10 appointments spread out over the year. They can have one appointment and kind of get a lot of the care. And a lot of it's more like screening, checking in, but you know, it's really cool because at the very end, it could just be like, okay, I'll see this kid. I'll mark down on his sheet my recommendations, make sure you go do this after you leave. All right, next person. But what's great is at the very end, we all meet, we eat like a pizza or something. And then we pull up a photo one by one. You tell me what's going on with this guy. What is it? Okay. Tell me more. And then we all make sure we're all on the same page with each patient. And so it does feel like a a setup that could work into that kind of a model at some point. You know what I mean? It's not as regular as I think the interprofessional model that you mentioned would be because, you know, there's not like weekly, I I don't see this patient weekly. I see them like once a year, you know what I mean? But it still kind of has that we are all on the same page. I do think we are one degree away from like, we are definitely all on the same page and like sharing goals kind of a thing, but it, it seems like something that could get there. So I do feel like that's a model. If anyone else is on a craniofacial team, that seems like a good place to talk about this kind of idea, you know, for modeling your meetings. Definitely. And I think something that is something that people confuse a lot of times is that they think that interprofessional collaboration has to happen when we're all physically in the room together all the time. Mm. And that's not true. You do not have to physically be in the room with someone all the time to be on an interprofessional team with them. And that's great if you can be, but that's just not realistic. And the great thing is that there's now so many tools online. There's Google Drive, there's email even that we Mm -hmm. can constantly communicate and we don't have to do that all in the same room all the time. So even if that's not possible for you, that doesn't mean you can never collaborate on an interprofessional team. As long as you're including the family in your conversations and you are regularly communicating with each other and trying to really provide this comprehensive care where you're all taking part in making sure that this patient is getting the best care that's really coordinated between your team members, then mm-hmm. you are you are on an interprofessional team. So don't discount yourself or think I could never do this <laughs> because we're not constantly seeing each other in person. Mm-hmm. How cool. Okay. So maybe some people out there are going to get inspired by that and hopefully 
if they're not quite there, you know, being a little because I, I do think it just takes it's if each person on the team has a shift in the way they think about what the team is doing. That's all it takes. You have to better understand each other's roles, make sure you're on the same page with them. You know, I don't know if it's there's like an accountability element that like you want to make sure they're on track and you're on track and make sure you check in on me and make sure I'm doing the right goals here and stuff like that. But yeah, it seems very attainable. It doesn't seem that, you know, far off at all. Yeah. And just that what I really think is great about it is that relationship building piece where you come to work and you know that you don't have to do everything. (laughs) You have someone Mm -hmm. else or multiple other people on your team that are also all accountable for the same goals and for helping that child or that client reach all their goals. And so it's not just you. And I think that that really can take a lot of that, not burden, but you do feel this responsibility that your client needs to meet all their goals. And it's nice that you know that others are there supporting you too, and you can share ideas with each other too. So I think that's something that's really great about it. Totally, totally. Switching gears a little bit from, you know, it in practice, thinking more about your research is your research, I'm sure it's more specific than just like IPB. You know what I mean? Is it more like how students are trained in this way or like how it's implemented in practice? Like what is your research kind of honing in on in the world of IPP? I am really interested in how we train our SLP grad students to learn how to collaborate on interprofessional teams. So I have been really honing in on interprofessional education. So when they're in grad school, they're getting some kind of practice experience with learning these skills and competencies and putting them into place. And so when I was doing my dissertation work, I did the study that I spoke about earlier where I had the two groups of graduate students and one only received workshop training, one received workshop training, plus they got to practice it. And from that experience and seeing that grad students really need to have their hands on kids and actually be collaborating with other Mm -hmm. professionals together to actually learn those competencies. That's kind of where I see my research continuing to go is is now figuring out how much time do they need to be collaborating together and what does that practice need to actually look like and figuring out those components. So that's really what I'm interested in now. Cool, cool. In in your work so far, has there anything that's kind of surprised you now that you started to dig into it a little bit? Something that still surprises me is that a lot of the, not, I won't say everyone, but a lot of people think that collaboration is something that just comes naturally, that we all just Hmm. know how to do it and we don't need training in it. It's just something that, you know, by the time you're in grad school, you're a grown up and you should know how to collaborate. But that's not true. It does really take practice and it takes reflection and it takes guidance And I think that's something that still surprises me is that a lot of people just think that it's something that comes easy and it's not worth really Mm. spending the time on. Yeah. Wow. That's a really good insight. That's a really, really good insight. And I think, yeah, I I see that sentiment a lot. I feel like that's definitely the way I was sort of trained is you kind of, you know, you figure it out as you go, but you're right. There's almost like a, like a definite almost like a code switching with different groups that you're talking to. Like I was never trained in how to talk to a really scary surgeon who's very serious and you know what I mean? Versus I also wasn't trained in like how to really best communicate with teachers who use like a totally different language than I do when we're talking about a child with hearing loss, like, and what their goals might be, might be different too. So it's, it, I definitely see we're a more formalized structure for teaching because to be honest, you're going to interact with a lot of the same kinds of professionals. This could be taught. It's not like an infinite group. 
I'm sure there's going to be some very random ones. It's not always going to be the same, but you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of groups that we have a lot of overlap with. And I feel like I had a lot of training in working with speech, right? Because our disciplines are so close, but wow, when I finished grad school, I was fortunate. I had a close friend who was in physical therapy school. Otherwise I was like, I don't even know what physical therapy does. I think when I graduated, I still didn't know what occupational therapy was. You know what I mean? Like until I was in a setting where there was occupational therapy down the hall and they were my friend now, now I know a little bit about what they do. I'll be honest. I'm still not totally sure on occupational therapy, but like, I'm pretty sure I know, but you know what I mean? It's, it's like, it does definitely need to be formalized. Like it has to be taught because some people also, they, this is a soft skill, right? This is like not even that easily taught, but it's, you have to be taught to even know <laughs> or you need feedback, you need structure. I'm really glad that you brought up these languages that we all use as different professionals. And that is something that has come out in the research that we do know so far is that grad students, undergrad students, they are so excited to learn all the jargon of their disciplines. And it's really great and really exciting. And then when they go to collaborate with other professionals, there are these communication (laughs) breakdowns because nobody knows what each other is talking about. And that's actually one of the recommendations in doing interprofessional education is to make sure that we're teaching our students how to handle these communication breakdowns and not use Mm. jargon when we're trying to communicate with each other because they won't know what we're speaking about. And oftentimes we're speaking about the same thing, but we're using different terms and that causes Mm -hmm. that communication breakdown. So that is, I'm glad you brought that up because that is one area that we do know it is worth spending the time doing that because just like you said, we end up in these situations where we don't feel comfortable approaching another professional and really sharing information and we don't feel like we know how to do that. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I'm really glad that's being examined though, because it makes a lot of sense. I'll be honest. I definitely identify with the, Ooh, a new audiology term that I can like try to drop in casual conversation. You know, (laughs) we all love our jargon. Yeah. Where do you feel like the research is heading in terms of IPP? Like what are the current goals to refine the practice or refine IPE? Like how we're teaching students, where's it all heading? So what we know so far is that a lot of the times when we are doing interprofessional education and really trying to measure it in a research setting, we are oftentimes examining students' knowledge and did they have a change in knowledge from this experience? Are they more knowledgeable now about this content area because we've had this experience? We also a lot of the times focus on their beliefs. Do you are do you now have more positive beliefs towards working collaboratively on teams? Oftentimes, we're finding, yes, they do. These experiences are successful in that area. And the third area that we focus on a lot are students' attitudes. So are you more positive now about collaborating because you've had this experience? And we often see that students are more positive about collaborating Mm -hmm. after this. Where we really need to go now and where the next steps are that a lot of people are talking about but having a hard time measuring is does this interprofessional education really change our grad student, our undergrad student, even our working professionals' behavior? And do Mm. they actually, are they able to apply these skills when they're working with another professional? And that's something that's we need to know. <laughs> we need to know if our training is effective and it is actually changing their behavior, but it's really hard to measure. And so we're still trying to figure out the best measures for that. One step past that that we really are working towards as an end goal is then if it does change our behavior, 
then are we able to have a positive impact on our patients because we are working on an interprofessional team? Does it really mm -hmm. matter if it's on an interprofessional team or an interdisciplinary team or just working by ourselves? Does it really make any difference in our patients' outcomes? And that's really the ultimate goal that we are working towards. And sure. hopefully we will make it there someday, but we're not quite there yet. Yeah. Wow. All of that makes total sense in terms of where we need to go next with this. I definitely see the seeing if there's actually a change in behavior being kind of important. <laughs> Even if you see the value in it, if you don't actually change how you practice, like there wasn't that much value in it. So that's a really good insight. And I think one of the things I really enjoyed seeing with the students when we kind of had the debrief after our, you know, IPP day is how much more confident they felt like in themselves as clinicians, like their own clinical knowledge. Once you have to explain what you're doing to people who have zero idea what you're doing, you realize, okay, wait, maybe I do know what I'm talking about right now. This is this is pretty good. So I, I think that's one of the, the other benefits here is that, you know, students kind of understand their own discipline a lot better and they, you know, they have more confidence in their ability to practice clinically. Yes. And we have actually seen it go both ways. This is actually a debate in this area of research right now is when do we start training our students in interprofessional mm. education? Because a lot of people have found that if you start too soon, then it may make the students feel more doubtful about knowing their own role if they don't mm. quite have a grasp on what their role is quite yet. And sure. so then when you introduce them to other professionals and they have to explain their role, if they, they're kind of like deer in the headlights, I don't really know yet. And so that can then cause the opposite effect where they're not as confident anymore. So there is wow. a lot of talk about when to time the center professional education and what to focus on if we are going to start early when they're undergrads. What can we have them work on early on so that mm -hmm. they don't feel that pressure to have to be on the spot, but they can still work as a team? So there is a mm. lot of thought in this area, and I think that's another thing we're still trying to figure out. Wow. Ah, I love this. I love. I also think it's just so. One of our most recent episodes was being a research audiologist, and every time I interview, every time I talk to someone who's a researcher, I'm like, "You just said there's a debate going on right now," and I'm like, "Ooh, like how cool would that be to be like in the middle of this like debate between ideas here?" I mean, that's that's really really cool. So if you're already a clinician in practice, or you're a student who doesn't have an opportunity to engage in this kind of thing, what can you do like now? <laughs> you can listen to this podcast, right? That's going to help. But other than that, are there resources? Are there like trainings in this kind of world? Because I think you're right that it does have to be like formally taught for people to really understand and implement these kinds of things. Yes. So a great place to start is the ASHA website. They recently have uploaded some really great resources for getting started and establishing an interprofessional team. So I highly recommend going on their website. They have some great tools that you can use when you're just getting started. Something that we know is that it's so much easier if you just start with one person. So when you are going into your workplace, who is that one person that you know would be open to collaborating? Maybe they're already mm. collaborating with someone, someone that's excited about it. They want to work with other people. Start with that person. So whoever you share clients with that you think is the most excited or would be the most open Start with them instead of trying to take on a full team of five, six people. <laughs> That's <Sure>. not necessary. <laughs> also, you want to try to establish a relationship. So maybe there's someone that works in your workplace that you know, but you don't really have a working relationship with. 
that's really going to be the foundation for how well you will be able to work together and help your clients. So really spend some time to form that relationship. Just get to know them as a person. Mm. And that will be really important in being able to work together. I think looking at those resources, kind of starting small, and then Mm -hmm. once you do have someone identified, coming up with a communication plan with how you are going to communicate. So some people might just want to communicate weekly by email when they're not working together. Others might want to have a shared planning time where they can come together in person. So really talk about your preferences and make sure that you have a plan for communication and also reflection because you're going to be working together for a period of time, which could look different depending on what setting you're in. But you should build in time to reflect on how things are going and make sure that you are comfortable and that you feel that this is actually benefiting the clients that you're working with. And if you need to make changes, that should be something that is constantly revisited, whether that's a change with your communication plan that you've set for each other or just your expectations on what this team is going to look like. So it's important to build in that reflection time. Yeah, I was actually, one of my questions was going to be is like, should we be monitoring our IPP-ness? <laughs> Whoa, wait, is this something we should be monitoring, like how involved, how we maintain these relationships? Because I do feel like if you're not, you know, constantly engaging with this, or if that patient that you share moves or whatever, it can be really easy for these things to like, you're like, okay, I've got a million other notes to write. I got these other things to do. I can't be in my constant communication with this person. So other than reflection, are there other ways that you recommend people kind of maintain that engagement? I like earlier how you mentioned it's like you have that personal relationship. So maybe like non, oh, hold on. I'm asking like three questions at once. Should this always remain like a very professional thing? Should you build like personal relationships? Like, let's go like for dinner or something like let's get lunch. Is that like going to muddy the water or maybe we don't know? Or like, do you know what I mean? When it comes to maintaining this, it all comes back to that being my root question here. Like what's the best way to maintain these relationships so that they're successful long-term? So I think that's really up to what you and the other team members are hoping to get out of this collaboration. The goal is to help the clients at the end of the day. When I was in the schools and I was able to co-treat, I worked closely with an occupational therapist and I just approached her at the beginning of the year. We were both working with preschoolers and saw that we had several kids that we were both going to be seeing. And so we decided that we did want to get to know each other a little bit more. And so, yes, we would go out to lunch sometimes and just get to know each other one on one. And then we also had our time where we were actually in the classroom together in her therapy gym and working with the kids on the swings and and all these things together. And so I think it's really what you are comfortable with and knowing that at the end of the day, the goal is to help your clients and help the patients and having that regular communication. If you can have shared planning time, that is something that comes up a lot as something that's really helpful in maintaining your relationship because you're brought together to sit down and look at and be reminded of those goals that you're working towards for both of you or three of you, however many are on the team. So those goals can really ground you as you're planning. Making sure you have that planning time can be really helpful to make sure that this is a successful and an effective interaction. So I would also recommend having that time. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I I think I love that you included your specific example there too, because I think that's helpful for people to know it's not so scary. Do you have tips for people who might have that kind of like professional shyness to reach out to, you know, for example, if I have, I have a, a kiddo on my caseload right now, she had meningitis as a baby 
And so she works closely, I mean, with a lot of different disciplines, but I hadn't like had a direct connection with trying to remember the name of her specialist. Anyways, she went to a therapy place that had a lot of different disciplines all in one place. And I'm far away, like they drive an hour to see me and then the other place is right near their home. So I bet that that team is all very well, like well connected to each other. They're all in the same building. And then I'm like sending my reports along, like she's doing great. You know, how, how's she doing over there? But you know, it's not the same thing. So do you have any tips for like kind of maybe the person who's a little bit more shy or doesn't know how to initially begin that conversation? Yeah, if you are not comfortable or maybe you can't, like in your situation where you can't just go up to their room and go strike a conversation, then I would say just start with an email. I mean, in in these days, everyone uses email pretty frequently. And so you can always just start in an email and just saying that you're interested in collaborating with this person because, you know, you're really interested in what they're doing and how you can better support what they're doing. I think that most people would be excited about that. And just Mm. knowing that there is some extra support and some extra help and that you are you're willing to learn more about what they're doing. I think people often like to share information about themselves and and what yeah. they're doing in their career and their passion mm-hmm. and so even if there's not a client that you've identified that you want to work with somebody with that you might have a shared caseload with just getting to know someone and then building that relationship can be a great idea because maybe there will be a client in the future that you can work with and you already kind of have that relationship formed. Yeah, that's a great idea. One of the things I try to teach my students is as soon as you graduate, it's so important to like establish your network of professionals, you know, meet some people in audiology and OT and PT, people that you can trust and that you like. And then I think this is just the next step for that is taking it just from like having a network where, oh, you need like you're having difficulty with this. Well, I know a great pediatric, you know, SL feeding SLP, that kind of thing, taking it from that to she and I are on a team together and are in close contact. You know what I mean? It's, it's like the next level from having a good network of people to having like a good interprofessional relationship with them. So that's awesome. It's a great idea. In your opinion, what looks like a great way to teach the next generation of clinicians how to engage in this. And this is all just like your opinion. You don't have to go straight. Like the data says, maybe based it a little bit in the data, but like you're a researcher making some insights. Like, do you think we should be starting at an undergraduate level or do you think we need to be waiting or how do we need to have the day long seminar? Like what is the, what is an ideal program where this is taught look like to you? That is great. I would love to just design my own program. (laughs) (laughs) Here's your opportunity. I would say definitely for me, I feel that we should start at the undergraduate level. I think it's really important from day one that they just start learning about who these other professions are. I think even just as a student, sometimes we don't get to learn what other professions are that we could pursue ourselves. So I Mm -hmm. think just having exposure to that early on in undergrad would be really helpful as we do determine that we want to be speech language pathologists or audiologists that we are just aware from the beginning. And I think it can really help frame us early on in thinking about this from a team approach and how we approach healthcare or how we approach working in schools is seeing Mm -hmm. it from this team approach. So I definitely think starting an undergrad is the way to go. And then consistently having interprofessional education throughout your undergrad and grad school, if you do continue on, and that's a profession that goes into grad school. I think that's really important as well, just having that continued exposure and not 
necessarily just a one-day seminar. I really appreciate those one-day seminars. I'm so glad that people have them because it's better than nothing. But I mm -hmm. do think that we need more than just the one-day seminar. And so yeah. having that constant exposure to other professionals, learning about them, practicing with them, I think, like we talked about earlier, gives us the confidence to want to keep doing that. So I would say those continued experiences I, I would advocate for. Yeah, that's awesome. So write it all down and then <laughs> submit it to a couple of schools. Just out of curiosity, what do you think they, uh, the, when you were talking about the undergrad level, what do you think that looks like? Is that like healthcare professionals day and it's like sort of like a career fair, but like more overlap? Like what is that? What do you think that looks like in practice? So I actually had the opportunity when I was at JMU to teach an interprofessional course for undergrads. And it was a new course that was being offered, and it was for those that were majoring in speech-language pathology and communication sciences and disorders, or those that were in education or special education majors. Mm. And they all came together for one course, and we introduced them to this concept of interprofessional practice. And we built opportunities for them to learn about each other's roles. And as we were talking about, we also had to kind of teach them a little bit about their own roles because they were mm. still undergraduate students. But sure. we built in opportunities for them to then go and shadow in a school that was collaborating and so that mm -hmm. they could see what that looks like in practice. I think that's really important at the undergraduate level just to show them what it looks like and can sure. look like and what outcomes can come from it. So mm -hmm. I think that would be, I would advocate for either, it doesn't always, I don't think it needs to necessarily be a course. It could be, like you said, a one day seminar, but I would say just multiple one day seminars that mm -hmm. we could kind of ease them into all of the competencies. You can't really learn all the competencies. I don't think all at once and feel really confident that you could do them all from just a one day seminar only one time. It, you could build in some of those experiences where it's a workshop that might happen repeatedly throughout their undergrad years or having a course that brings them together with other majors where they're getting to learn about other professions early on. Yeah. I'm a little jealous I didn't get to take the class when I was there because <laughs> that's awesome. My wife's a first grade teacher. And so we, we you know, we would have been in the same class. That would have been so cool. I really think that's a really great idea. And I, I love that model. I wasn't sure, you know, my, I was like, maybe this is like a career day, but I do think I see it as a course and everyone's in the same room at our school where I'm at now, they have the undergraduate major is just like public health. They don't have CSD or like a lot of other things. So there are students who want to be audiologists and want to be SLPs and want to be epidemiologists, you know, like all kinds of different people. And they take kind of like an intro class. I don't think the emphasis is on IPP per se. It's more just like exposure, not necessarily like where those worlds collide. But I think if you were to introduce that and make it a little bit more formal, you're already laying the groundwork for later on. Like, oh, it's not so crazy because I know they, they do this, you know, and I can have a relationship with that person. So exactly. That's great. And as faculty members, that's something when I talk to other faculty, they ask me, well, like, how can we do this in our department? And thinking about creating a brand new course that's only in a professional collaboration, it doesn't fit with what they already yeah. have planned when are they going to do that the timing's not going to work out and yeah. really all I say is just build it into what you're already doing you mm -hmm. just like you suggested you can just 
already we already have this course that has these three or four disciplines in it. So now we just mm-hmm. need to build in the activities or take the activities that we're already doing, but let's approach yeah. it in a different way and think about how we can talk about collaboration here or build in these competencies here. It's something that I think comes off as seeming so hard and so big, but there's ways to just start small and start planting yeah. the seed. And it, it really doesn't need to take so much work to just overhaul what you're already doing. You can just build this into things that are already ongoing. Yeah, that's great. And I think having those competencies established is so helpful. Like you don't have to come up with the grading criteria or the content, the curriculum for this. Like it already exists. You just have to think about how that can integrate with what you're already teaching. Yeah, that's awesome. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about About From and With, your awesome new podcast that I've had the chance to listen to for a little while. I mean, it's been going for like since June. So it's not I was going to say long. it's like a couple months now. <laughs> it is a couple months. Yes. And thank you to you because I had so many questions for you and I was getting started. <laughs> but this podcast I started because I was really interested in hearing more about SLP's journeys and how they got to where they are in the field. So this podcast, I interview other SLPs and how they got to where they are now. And then I also have started to interview some of our collaborators, like teachers and audiologists. Mm -hmm. And I also share some solo episodes on the podcast where I talk about my journey as being a speech-language pathologist and pursuing a career in academia. Because Mm -hmm. I found, as I've been navigating it, that, that sometimes it's hard to find out what others have gone through on their path in academia. And so I was really interested in just sharing my story there so that others who are thinking about pursuing a PhD, going into academia, that hopefully I could share some helpful tips for them. Yeah, I I really like that it kind of splits between those two. You've got the interviews and then the personal episodes. It's like a good balance of the two. And it is cool. I mean, it's everybody has such a unique, different way that they got there. And you learn a lot of cool things on the way. I'm trying to think of the one of the earlier episodes that I listened to with Dr. Timler from JMU. And she just had a really cool story of how she ended up in this world. I mean, it's just so cool. It's those it's those stories that you're lucky if you are have a personal relationship with another professional that you get to hear, but it doesn't always naturally come up like, oh, how did you get to be where you are today? But everybody has such an interesting <laughs> way that they got where they are, you know? Exactly. So it's cool. Yes. And I was trying to do some informational interviews last year when I was thinking about going on the job market and looking for a faculty position. And I started just doing informational interviews with faculty members in CSD departments to kind of hear their stories. And I just started thinking, man, I wish I could share these. Like there's so many gems here and so much wisdom. So I'm hopeful that others find them helpful and you get ideas. Sometimes you don't even know of things that are out there in our field. And so now hopefully people will have some ideas and learn some new things and new paths that they could pursue in the field. That's awesome. And I know that you get the name from is it the definition of IPP? I know it's definitely related. You know, we're learning about people and from them and with them. Is that like specifically tied in? Yes, I did. That was intentional because of my research focus and how passionate I am about interprofessional practice. Calling it about from and with, that is part of the definition of interprofessional education is learning about from and with others. And so I did kind of steal that from there because of, <laughs> because of my passion for interprofessional practice. Cool. And then where are you hoping to go in the future with it? I, right now, I am working on my first season. So I'm going to continue with my first season until the end of this year. 
And then I'm really hoping to get feedback on what people are liking if they want to keep hearing the solo episodes about my journey or want to just focus more on interviews if that was more helpful. And that way I can kind of shape my next season for next year. Sure. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I know that they, you've got some exciting guests on the docket. I mean, just unbelievably exciting guests. You know? Yes. Someone named Dakota <laughs> Sharp. I don't know if you've heard of him. Maybe making an appearance. <laughs> and then that's available on all... I listen to it on Spotify. I don't know if it's available on all the other ones. It is. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, Danica, it's been so great talking with you about all of this amazing information. It's been very like helpful at a theoretical level, just understanding content, but also you've just made it very practical, very approachable. I'm excited to see how our students are better 10 years from now because of the developments you guys are making in your research. It's really, really awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been really great to talk with you and share this information and hopefully others find it helpful. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.